Uh, the Bible reading today is from Colossians. We're continuing on. Uh, it's chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Hopefully my phone won't ring again. I'm not used to using technology. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Colossians 1, 15 to 23, about the supremacy of the Son of God. It's God's word. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thanks, Greg. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our service here and uh, welcome to those on live stream. There are many people joining us in worship on live stream this morning. And uh, we are in a series called Captivated by Christ, a series in the book of Colossians. We began last week. I see some new people here this morning. And so we did begin last week. If you wanted to see last week's talk, go to our YouTube channel and you can uh, connect there. Friends, uh, let me take you to a conversation I had a few years ago. I, I was shopping. Every time I go shopping, someone wants to talk to me about Jesus. I don't know what that is, but I, that's why I go shopping, okay? No other reason. Um, but there were three, this time, three young Muslim women in the early 20s. And uh, two were Turkish and one was Lebanese. And um, they asked me, what do you do for work? I tell you, when you're a pastor, it's a nice in to a conversation. And sometimes it kills a conversation when I answer, but... Sometimes it doesn't. I said, I'm a minister trying to understand what language to use when you're describing yourself, who doesn't look like a priest without priestly garments, garments on, to uh, some people. So I said, oh, I'm a minister in a church, just to see where that goes. Oh, do you like what you do, they asked. Oh, yes, absolutely. I said, I love t- telling people about God, helping people have a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, uh, you know, there's no better job to have. And then I said, do you go to church? I know, they said, we are Muslims. I said, well, so which mosque do you attend? Oh, we attend Auburn. How often? Oh, we don't go often. Uh, The men go more often than us. Then they said, why do you think your belief is right? Well, thanks for asking the question. I said, I believe that God loves us so much that he stepped into human history and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus is God the Son who came to be our saviour. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and he brings us forgiveness. 
But more than that, I said, we believe he rose from the dead on the third day. Because he rose from the dead, I believe he is truly God's son and he's the only way of salvation. Well, we believe in Jesus, they said, but we believe he's a prophet. They're right, that's what they do believe. And I said, well, we believe that he is God the son who created the world and also became to be the saviour of the world. Because he died for us, if we believe in him, we can be forgiven and have a place in heaven. I said, it's a gift from God, forgiveness, by the way, and a place in heaven. It's not our works. It's not how often we pray and do these other things. It's, it's receiving from God his generous gift. We talked about the Lord for 45 minutes or so. They initiated the conversation and they kept it going because I was very cautious not to be pushy on people. They're lovely girls, interested to know the truth. It made my afternoon and it seemed to have made theirs as well. So I was leaving, you don't often hear this, I heard the youngest one say, what a lovely man. <sighs> no, I don't get those types of compliments very often. <laughs> From three Muslim young women trying to find their purpose in life and their belief about, about a God in the middle of that. But it's also very sad because, as you would be aware, our understanding is that Muslims have an inadequate view of Christ they don't recognise him as a supreme lord, as God, nor the sufficient saviour. And uh, Paul wrote to the Colossian church to remind them uh, that Christ is the supreme lord and he is the sufficient saviour. I want you to keep those two uh, expressions in your mind this morning. The false teachers that were influencing the church also had an inadequate view of Christ. You see, if he's not supreme lord... If he's just a prophet, or like an angel, maybe some of them were arguing, he will not be a sufficient saviour. And Paul points to the errors in chapter 2. We'll deal with that in two weeks' time. But in this chapter, he gives us a big picture of Jesus. So we stop for a moment. Last week, we looked at his prayer of thanksgiving and prayer of intercession. Now he stops and says, let me give you a big picture of Jesus. The supreme and sufficient one, who reconciles us to God through his death on a cross. Firstly, the supremacy of Christ in creation, verses 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Friends, we know what God is like when someone says, how do you know what God is like? Because we have seen what God is like in his son, Jesus, who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that we can see, be aware of God's existence and his attributes in the very creation, right? You say, you look at the world, you should know that there is a God. But you see, you can look at a tree or a sunset or the majesty of the Grand Canyon, but that's not the same as looking at God himself in Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. In Christ, we see who God is. He is creator and redeemer. We see what God is like. He's a God of mercy and love. We see what God does. He sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and brings reconciliation of all creation through his death on the cross. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote that in Christ God shows us his righteousness, his goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. Secondly, he is firstborn over all creation. Now, it's an interesting expression. Normally, we associate firstborn with birth. It connotes the first child born, often used in the Bible in this sense. But the word can also mean first in rank or supreme 
in dignity. Very important. The firstborn son is the special one, the one who inherits uh, the father's possessions. It doesn't mean that Christ, listen carefully, it doesn't mean that Christ was created or was a first created being. It's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe in some other groups. They think God created Jesus and then through Jesus they created the other things. That's not what firstborn means. Uh, Psalm 89 verse 27 it's used as a sign of sovereignty, of kingship. God says of the Davidic king, I will also appoint him my firstborn son, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. It speaks of sovereignty and dignity and rank and first in honour. Firstborn son also has the fa- is the father's heir. God's son, Jesus Christ, is heir of all things, Hebrews says, chapter 1, verse 2. He demonstrates the superi- his superiority uh, over angelic powers in Hebrews 1.6. So what Paul wants us to know, because the, the false teacher is talking about angels and their role and where Jesus is. No, no, he's saying, no, no, here's the firstborn. He is supreme in rank, supreme in power. He's not like those angels, very different. And we see that he is preeminent and superior over all creation because he created all things, verse 16. He's not created, he's the creator. For in him, or by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Do you notice the word for at the beginning of verse 16? For in him, he is supreme, he is preeminent, he is first in rank, he is the heir of all things, and he is the title of the firstborn, because he created all things. He is not created, as we say, he is the creator. But more than that, he is the controlling principle of all creation. Verse 17. He is before all things, he always existed, and in him all things hold together. You see, David Garland writes, a commentator, Christ has precedence over all things in terms of time and status, and it's a kind of divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. See, the God of the Bible does not simply create the world and step off and go on a holiday. No, no, he created the world and holds the world in place. H.G. Moll wrote, he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Well, as you know, there's a bit of chaos in our world, isn't there? Earthquakes, cyclones, tsunamis, illness. But if God withdrew himself, it would be chaos. God keeps it going in his grace until he comes again for the new heavens and the new earth. He is supreme Lord. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a religious teacher. He's the image of the invisible God, the creator of the universe. C.S. Lewis, you'll be aware, a great Christian writer from the past, wrote these famous words about Christ. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is one of the things we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, or he may add, or a prophet, 
or something else. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, the Christ that Paul preaches is the creator who stepped into human history to be a sufficient savior. Secondly, the supremacy of God in the new creation. He is the head of the body, the church. That's us. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, speaking of his resurrection, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Listen to that language. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We've seen verse 18 to 20 that the cosmic Christ came down to earth and blood flowed from his body strung up on a cross. Friends, that's just absolutely ought to blow your mind, that the creator of the universe becomes human and blood flows from him as he's strung up on a cross. The creator and sustainer of all things became the crucified and resurrected Lord. And this Lord is the head of his body, the church. And what I love about that is because he is head and he is Lord, he is building his church. He's established his church in Western churches, in African villages, in Asian cities, in house churches, in prison cells, and, and families, as well as in the furthest reaches of the heavens. He promised to build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is doing his work. He is supreme. He is head over the world, creator. He is head over his church, and he is building his church. And he sometimes built his church in the most unusual places and in the most unusual ways. A few years ago, during the, the ISIS uh, attacks on, on people and the killings and the beheadings and the shootings and so on, the Christian Aid Mission Organization wrote an article reporting that many Muslims were coming to Christ in the Middle East in the midst of such brutality and killing. It says... The atrocities by Islamic State had softened the hearts of Muslims to Christianity and there was a spike in conversions in the Middle East. Former Muslims were finding that God is real and God was personable. In war-torn areas of Syria and Iraq, where ISIS was fighting to establish a caliphate, Muslim refugees to neighboring countries, internally displaced people and people remaining at home learned about Christ from aid workers, podcasts and broadcasts. Tent churches among refugees were sprouting like mushrooms in that period of time. For people who had suffered such deep loss, they write, they were seeing that they could pray to a personal God whom they can call Father. And that was so different to what they'd ever experienced before. So you can see the tears in their eyes when we pray that God would care for them. It's a connection that makes a huge difference. Muslims who were previously taught to pray by rote to Allah, who by Quranic definition was unknowable, can feel the difference of having a relationship with God through Christ. They see that God can give you strength, can heal you. They say that things have changed for them. They now have a peaceful attitude towards those who have done this to us, to our kids, our, our wives, our husbands. We can pray and God can give us peace now. We've never had this before, they were saying. Former Muslims who once prayed five times a day as a duty say they don't quite know how to describe the difference. Now, with our relationship with God, we can see a huge difference. Everything has changed in our lives, they said. You can see it on their faces. Every time we pray, there's a difference. Soul-crushing loss of loved ones. Home and country that people have suffered at the hands of ISIS has helped open Muslims to the gospel. 
And I wonder what God will do in the middle of Turkey and Syria today. As we go in Jesus' name, as the world gathers to love and to serve, to comfort people in their brokenness and their lostness, because that happens many times across the globe, that in the midst of tragedy, God can demonstrate his love and his mercy, that there is a God who loves them despite their losses. Christ builds his church in Mozambique and Lebanon and Bali and Indonesia, PNG, Vietnam, and locally. And Ben and Ali are here. They're about to take their family flying out Tuesday to France. They're part of our team, missionary team. We're supporting them. They've been raising funds. They got their visas just the other day and bought tickets three days later, all that on the same day. And we need to pray for them because France needs to hear the gospel. Because France, like most of Europe, had been Christianized and now it's been unchristianized. It's like someone said, like you've been married and you've been divorced now. We're no longer interested in that wife or that wife of Christianity. We need the gospel to reach into the hearts of men and women in France, amongst other places. He says he is the head of the church, head of the body of the church. He is the leader of the church. He is the source of the church's life, all made possible through the cross and resurrection. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, it says. Because he lives, we live. John 14, 19 says, because I live, you also will live. And see, he comes and he defeats death and he reigns supreme over everything so that in everything he might have the supremacy over our lives, but over the cosmos. Friends, it made reference to the fact that this cosmos is out of harmony with God. It's fallen, it's disordered, it's fractured. Famine in Africa, earthquake in Turkey and Syria, cyclones in the USA. I think a cyclone's about to hit New Zealand. Cancer in young bodies sitting in hospital beds. It's out of whack with God, but God's going to recreate it in a perfected state one day because Christ has the victory. He also has the fullness of God. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He is a full, not a partial embodiment of God. When you see Christ on the earth, he is God and man at the same time. It's what Christians believe. And then he reconciles us, or reconciles all creation through his death, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Blood refers to death by violence. Get your head around the God of the universe dying in our place. That's why, for example, the Muslims cannot conceive of that. Christ did not die, he just pretended to die and God placed someone else in the place of of Christ. But our God humbles himself to win the victory over sin, death and judgment through his own suffering and his death. And then thirdly, having given us a big picture of Christ over ruler over creation, ruler over the new creation, his church, his supremacy in reconciliation... And he wants these believers who are challenged to go elsewhere to, to follow the false teachers. He says, no, no, guys, listen. Once, well, you had a past, you had a present, and now you have a future. Once we were alienated from God. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
Selfishness, atheism, sexual immorality, drunkenness, drugs, uh, gambling, materialism, jealousy, anger, violence, whatever it is, you are far from God. Lost and depraved, but things have changed. You know, I was speaking at a, at a funeral uh, on Friday, and I, I wanted to say to the people gathered there, and a uh, great opportunity to preach the gospel to uh, about 150, 200 Greeks and one or two others, and uh, to speak about the hope of the gospel. That God is a relational God. He wants to know us. But also, doesn't, I said, whoever believes will be saved. And some of you may think that the building will, will fall down and crash out on your head if you go into a church. It hasn't. And God knows that we all sin and we all make, make mistakes. I gave some illustrations of people who started coming to our church. For five years ago, we were in a dark place and now in a have peaceful relationship with Christ. And I said, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, you're welcome to come to God. And he writes to these believers, once you were alienated because of your evil behavior. Yes, you were evil, but now something has happened. We are now reconciled through Christ. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Again, the scholar Garland writes, reconciliation with God breaks the cycle of sin, heals the ruptured relationship with God, and brings us into accord with God's holy character and purpose. His body is broken. His body is sacrificed. He identifies with us. He is fully God, becomes fully man, identifies with our sinful, sinful humanity to die in our place. There's another friend who came to me a few years ago facing criminal charges. And he said, I don't know what, where I should turn, but does God love me? I've been through a lot of difficulties in my life. I'm up before the courts. I might end up in jail. Does God love me? He asked. And I said to him, I said, look at the cross, look at the blood, look at the suffering of the God who gave himself for you. If you ever doubt that God loves you, look at the cross, fall at the foot of the cross. And therefore we are now forgiven, restored in a right relationship with God. As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame, by holy, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But then he says something else that we often don't say. He says something else we often don't say. Because sometimes people say to you, are you once saved, always saved? Yes. If you are genuinely saved once, and the Spirit of God is in you, and God has restored you, yes, he will persevere you to the end. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. But at the same time, the Bible also urges us to continue in the faith. It's a temptation, you see, for these believers to be led astray. So no, you start it well, but if you're going to follow false teaching, if you're going to leave Christ behind, if you're going to go to the worship of angels, if you're going to go back to Old Testament laws, then you've left. So don't do it, he says. If you continue in your faith... Established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Don't leave. Keep going. So I say to 15-year-olds, you came to Christ yet when you got baptized? Well, you need to keep going for the next 80 years of your life if you get that many years, right? Well, let's just do a week at a time. At <laughs> least for Jesus this week and grow and learn and mature. And you don't know what's going to happen to you. Because I know after 25 years, sometimes a marriage will split and you wonder where God is. You walk away. Or sometimes one of your children will get sick and die and you wonder where God is. And sometimes something else happens in your life. 
And you think, God, I trusted in you, I loved you, and I'm not sure you're real. And God, I'm just going to follow something else and follow some new age teaching or follow some alternative religion. And it's always a temptation, and that's why the Bible says, continue. And the Holy Spirit helps us to continue. The Word of God helps us to continue. The church helps us to continue. But there's a call if you continue in the truth. Had a couple here a number of years ago who were coming and wasn't quite sure whether they saved. Then a bit later, and they ended up in a Jehovah's Witness church. I said, "How did that happen?" I said, "They visited us. They're really nice to us. They loving. They were loving to us. So we started going to their church. They didn't know the difference of theology and so on. They just went, oh, well, you know, lovely, loving and friendly. So easy to move from the truth of the gospel. And sometimes, friends, we we listen to the culture of the day." The culture tries to tell us what we ought to believe about God and Jesus, what we believe about sexuality, what we believe about same-sex relationships, what we believe about all types of things about the use of money. Society is trying to transform us into its own image. What, that, what the society thinks is valuable and true. We need to continue in the faith. And Paul says, one, chapter 1, verse 6, all over the world the gospel is bearing fruit. 123, the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Well, clearly it hasn't gone to everyone at that stage because it hadn't moved to Africa yet or South America or anywhere else. It's not to be taken literally true, but he's saying the gospel has universal appeal. No class or group is excluded. It goes out to everyone. It's spreading around the cities. In that sense, it's going over to the whole world in his understanding. Well, it's spreading everywhere. That's, that's the point. And people are being saved. How do we finish today? But no matter what anyone offers you, remember Christ is enough. He's supreme in creation. He's supreme in the new creation. He's supreme in reconciliation. He is the supreme Lord and the sufficient Saviour. You need no other trust in him. Amen.